I have one thing to say to you. Kiss my fat ass. Hello, my fellow mourners of diet culture. It is I, Emily Lubin. I'm the Grim Reaper and the host of this show. Welcome to RIP Diets, Season 1, Episode 23. Okay, this is going to be another sciencey episode. We are giving off sciencey vibes. I don't often talk about science on this podcast. This podcast is meant to be a little more personal, a little more storytelling, because as you all know, I am not a dietitian or a doctor or a medical researcher. I'm just a gal with a passion for ending diet culture, and I feel that everybody else should have a passion for it too. But something happened this week that I am dying to share with all of you. So I'm going to get right into it. Um, A little background info. My boyfriend does most of the grocery shopping and cooking in our household. And when I say most of it, I mean virtually all of it. I don't cook. I don't clean. But let me tell you, I got this ring. So He made the most delicious turkey chili a few nights ago, and he said to me, guess what the secret ingredient is? So I start guessing, uh, paprika? For some reason, when someone says, guess the secret ingredient, my first guess is always paprika, even though I couldn't really tell you what paprika tastes like. And then he tells me the secret ingredient is, wait for it, MSG. And then he points to the spice rack and there is a container of white powder with MSG in block lettering on the label. And my gut reaction was, wait, isn't that bad for you? And I think he could read my mind because he said, this would actually be a great topic for RIP diets. Talk about MSG and how it became known for being toxic and horrible because of racism against the Chinese. And I have to admit to all of you, I had never heard about this or given any thought to it. I was shook by this, okay? He started telling me a little bit about how MSG got such a bad reputation, so much so that people started referring to it as Chinese restaurant syndrome and avoiding food made with MSG at all costs. And I had always heard that MSG makes you sick. Um, it can give you a horrible stomach ache. I've heard it can even kill you if eaten in large doses. I've heard horror stories about MSG over the years. And guess what? Everything you've been told about MSG is false. I know. I was shocked too. So I did some extensive research into MSG. And I want to share with all of you what I learned because It's absolutely mind-blowing. First of all, MSG stands for monosodium glutamate, and it was discovered in the early 1900s as a simple way to add that umami flavor to food. Um, And umami, in case you haven't heard of it, is actually thought to be one of the key flavors in food, the others being 
sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. Buddhist monks would often add MSG to their food because they, of course, ate a vegetarian diet, and throwing in some MSG was a very simple way to make a vegetarian meal a whole lot more flavorful. So then MSG became a staple in certain parts of Asia and was referred to as the essence of flavor. Ooh. Then... In the 1950s, it was brought to the U.S., and to this day, MSG is used in many packaged foods that, unless you read the ingredients, you might not even realize they're made with MSG because on that bag of chips, it does not say MSG in block lettering. You have to read the ingredients to know. Then, in the late 60s or early 70s, medical researchers started noticing that people would complain that they were getting sick after eating at Chinese restaurants. Hence, Chinese restaurant syndrome became a term. And they started linking these reported symptoms to the MSG content in the food. And then, um, and I've seen this before, some Chinese restaurants started popping up claiming that their food was made without MSG and that you would have nothing to fear eating at their restaurants, which perpetuated this theory. And here we are 50 plus years later, and MSG is still known as the devil when really our fear of MSG was actually born out of biases that we have and this notion that foreign food is dirty or impure, or if they use ingredients that we're not used to, they must be bad for us. If you actually do the research, and I did, I've done extensive research, there is plenty to read about MSG on the internet. I would implore you to do a quick Google search and read some articles about it. One thing that has been proven, okay, is that MSG can negatively impact a small subset of people, usually when it's consumed on an empty stomach. So it's very possible that in the beginning, people would go to Chinese restaurants when Chinese restaurants started popping up in the States and they weren't used to Chinese cuisine and they would start out with a bowl of wonton soup, which was traditionally what you would start out with at the beginning of the meal. And they would consume it on an empty stomach. And it's possible that the MSG would affect their stomach or cause other negative symptoms. But for the vast majority of people, and when consumed not on an empty stomach, MSG is a completely harmless additive. And the chances of it making you sick are very slim. This is... Another example of something that I've brought up before, which is the nocebo effect. The nocebo effect is the phenomenon of thinking something will harm you or cause negative side effects, so much so that when you do consume it, you feel those side effects purely because you expected to feel them, which might sound crazy to some. But don't underestimate the mind-body connection. When you consume something and you really believe that it will make you sick, the chances of it making you sick can increase drastically. And we see the nocebo effect with so many things nowadays, the main ones being uh, gluten and dairy, which suddenly everyone thinks they have a sensitivity to and very few people actually do. 
by the way, we know that it's a nocebo effect because the same people who claim to get sick after eating at Chinese restaurants that use MSG don't get sick when they consume packaged food that they don't realize contains MSG. So that's pretty concrete evidence, at least from where I'm standing, that it's almost always completely psychosomatic. I personally think this is so interesting and I gotta say the MSG laden chili that I had the other night was unbelievably delicious and did not make me sick whatsoever. So that's just some food for thought or MSG for thought if you will. It's so crazy seeing that MSG label on my spice rack really did induce panic in me. And then when I actually sat down and read about it, my fears were completely eased. And I think this goes along with everything that I'm saying. We just kind of assume things about food based on what we've heard from other people without really digging in and doing the research and understanding that believing that these things are bad for us is actually more harmful to our health than the actual thing itself. Now, on to a completely different note. This week, I had a lovely conversation with Mae Wilkerson, a writer and comedian based in LA, who has recovered not only from bulimia, but also drugs and alcohol, which is so impressive to me. And she's so thoughtful about recovery and speaks very eloquently about it. We spoke about how her alcoholism fueled her eating disorder and vice versa, and also what it's like to seek recovery for multiple addictions. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And I know you're going to love May. One thing I wanted to address before we get into the conversation, there was one thing that May said that I said we were going to circle back to, but the conversation kind of went in a different direction and we never circled back to it. She talks at one point about the gym and how working out has helped her in recovery and specifically how it's helped her worry less about what she's eating and focus more on how she's feeling, which I totally agree with and have said myself many times that the gym can be very therapeutic post-recovery. But at one point, she uses the term binging in this part of the conversation. And she implies that going to the gym makes her feel less guilty about binge eating. It definitely comes off a bit disordered the way she phrased it. And I don't think she meant it that way at all. I immediately knew what she meant when she said it. And when I was less aware of proper terminology, I would sometimes refer to eating what I wanted as binge eating. And it honestly took me years to understand what a binge actually is versus what I thought a binge was. I don't know if others can relate to this, but I have referred to my eating as binging before when really it wasn't a binge at all. I just ate an ice cream sundae or I just ate something that I never used to let myself eat. So whenever I did, I thought to myself, oh, I'm binging now. I'm eating something that I used to restrict. This is so exciting. I'm binging. But that's not what a binge is at all. Uh, Let's just get that very clear. Eating an ice cream sundae or eating, you know, a high calorie meal or a meal that you are not used to eating, that's just eating what you want and feeling fueled by it, which is exactly what I preach on this podcast. We need to be more careful about what we call a binge because simply eating higher calorie foods or eating things that you used to restrict, 
that's not a binge, okay? A binge is eating an extreme amount of food very quickly, usually to the point of being uncomfortable and being sick. I don't think that's what May meant. I'm pretty certain she just misspoke, and I wanted to address that before getting into it since I didn't get to address it in the actual conversation. So now that I've covered all my bases and put that disclaimer on it, let's get right into my conversation with May Wilkerson. Guys, my guest today is a friend of mine that I've known from doing comedy in New York City. She now lives in LA and Jesus Christ, whenever I see her face, I am reminded how much I miss her. Um, she is a hilarious comedian and writer. Her name is May Wilkerson. Welcome to the show. Hi, Emily. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you for coming on. May has taken time out of her busy day, working a day job, doing writing. You're writing for a website, correct? Yeah, I'm an editor at some e-cards. They pretty, won't, pretty cool. Yeah. They won't miss hey, me. We're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're one of the big guys. Um, I <laughs> wanted to have you on because you and I have spoken before about your history with an eating disorder, specifically bulimia, right? Mm-hmm. And I would love to know, we've talked about it on the show before I had Jesse Jollis on and we talked a little bit about bulimia, but bulimia is such a strange thing where like it affects everybody differently. I've known girls that they literally will purge after every meal. I've known girls that quote dabble in bulimia or like an accessory to another eating disorder. And it's a really complicated thing to get over. I think because there's not like a playbook on how to recover from it. It's very, and for like for me at least, because I definitely struggled with it, very, very difficult to recover because you have to just go cold turkey. So I would love to just know at what point in your life that started and at what point you decided to choose recovery. Yeah, I. it, it is so interesting how it's like so different for everybody. To me, it's always been, I'm an addict And I'm also in recovery from alcohol addiction. So I have kind of really seen the two of these issues side by side. And and I also have quit smoking cigarettes. Like I've quit smoking weed. Um, Bulimia has been the hardest addiction for me to break. Like I truly, yeah, I truly think of it as like, um, as almost a drug that, Yeah. Like I just, it's like, it just, it completely numbs you out. It's like, it's a coping mechanism. Um, I started doing it when I was 19, when I was in college, because I, it it started as a weight loss technique because I struggled with my weight and I was like an overeater in college. I gained a lot of weight. And I remember someone saying, like, just saying off, it's, it's always like an offhanded remark that someone makes, like, you know, it's so cool. Like, bulimia, you can, you get to like eat whatever you want and lose weight. And it's never a bulimic that says that. It's always No, it's always someone who's joking. It's like, it's the same person that will say to you, like, uh, like if you say you're anorexic at all, they'll be like, oh, I wish I, I had your willpower. Like it's always someone who doesn't understand it at all. Someone who doesn't understand it, who probably has like a I mean, no one really, I think, has a completely normal or healthy relationship with food. I think food in general is probably the most universal drug that the most people are addicted to. Yeah. Um, and to me, bulimia is just like the the way my food addiction, I think of it as just like a food addiction. And it's yeah. kind of the way that my food addiction manifests. 
um, because it started as a weight loss technique, but then it quickly, as you know, it spiraled into a full-blown addiction. It took over my life. I don't think I even lost any weight. I mean, maybe a little bit at the beginning, but then my weight consistently would just like fluctuate and it was so out of my control, which is crazy because it was a the whole reason it started was a was came from a place of needing to control and wanting to control. Right. And then it just completely took control of my life. And there were in college, there were a few years where I was kind of like binging and purging several times a day. And I would say I was like, but then after college, it almost like I replaced it with alcohol and drugs for a little while, which is why I think the two of them are just kind of two sides of the same coin. Like if I was drinking and doing a lot of drugs, then I wouldn't need this other coping mechanism. And then when I got sober, it kind of resurfaced again because I had quit my other major coping mechanism. And so whereas I'd been like drinking to blackout every day, suddenly I had nothing and I just had all of these feelings and life felt so hard, even though it was like, just like being sober felt so hard and bulimia became like a replacement coping mechanism. Yeah. Well, I've never dealt with any kind of addiction. I'm lucky because I, in my adulthood, I have so many friends who are now sober and I have, I am fortunate not to have dealt with that, but I've heard from many people that it's like Mm whack-a-mole, like, and I don't know if that comes from like an AA terminology or something, but I've, I've heard it's like whack-a-mole. Like once you defeat one addiction or you're coping with, with one addiction, another one can pop up because you need something to assert your control over yourself. And, and, um, yeah. So how did you discover like recovery? Like was, it was recovery a word that eating disorder recovery, was that something that was introduced to you or did you go about it on your own? Um, I mean, I definitely sought help for my eating disorder before I sought help for my drinking. Cause I knew it was a problem. Oh, really? Yeah, I knew it was a problem and I I I didn't want to be I just didn't want to do it. I was like this is ruining my life. I hate it. It's I feel sick all the time. I I can't it's embarrassing. Like it's a, it's not a cool addiction. No, it's so shameful. <laughs> it's so shameful. It's the most like it felt really embarrassing. I remember like when a few people when I, when friends would find out about it when I was in college and I just want like I w- wanted to just curl up and die. Like I couldn't imagine anything worse than yeah, people knowing this about me. So I did go to a psychiatrist when I was in college and it was like the school psychologist, I guess. And he could not have been worse. He like- This is everyone's story, by the way. Can I just say like anybody I've talked to who goes to a college therapist or psychologist has a terrible experience. Are they just not trained? Like, do we? No, I don't expect you to have an answer for this, but like, it really blows my mind. They don't, they, they just don't, maybe they just don't have like specialties. They have to address every issue and they're not actually good at addressing any single issue. I'm not sure. That may be it. I don't know. That's a little validating because I wasn't sure if it oh, was yeah. just my shitty school, but yeah. <laughs> what think- school did you go to? 
Um, I went to McGill University in Canada. Shout out. Oh, okay. okay. Great school, honestly. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, not a shitty school in general. Not a shitty school at all, but just like this was a particular aspect of it that was like kind of traumatizing. Um, and what happened with the therapist? So it was this like older man, this, and he was, uh, first of all, he was eating a burrito in in the session and which would have, which would have been fine, except that he made like an, as soon as I was like, so I'm struggling with an eating disorder. I never said that out loud. And he was just like, Oh, well, I guess I shouldn't be eating this burrito in front of you. huh? No shit. And then I was like, I mean, no, that's not really how eating disorders work. I'm not like triggered by watching other people eat. If I was, I'd be pretty fucked because people eat all the time. You shouldn't be eating a burrito while doing a therapy session. Like that's that's just not professional in any way, shape or form. Exactly. And then to make like an awkward joke about like my eating disorder as the first thing he said. And then he kind of like got – and then he got creepy and he was like – He was like, I just think it's so weird that you have issues with your body. You have such sexy curves. Like most women (gasps) would love to have curves like that. And I was like, okay, I'm done here. My God. And what I – I don't even remember his name and I wish I I had reported him because that's a completely inappropriate thing to say. To someone completely inappropriate. Probably yeah. nothing would have happened if you did report him. So true. <laughs> if so you're true. Being honest. And I would have had to like talk about my eating disorder to all of these other people at the school. But I would have had to like go to the administration and be like, "So I have an eating disorder." And then this yeah. thing happened. And then I would. Yeah, you're like worse. doing musical chairs, like telling all the therapists <laughs> yeah. that you have an eating disorder you're and like, not getting that guy out. over there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I so, did. Did that discourage you? Like, did you go seek help elsewhere? Uh, no, I, that was that was pretty much it for oh, that. Man. That was my first time getting therapy. And then I didn't go back to therapy until I was like 25, 24, 25, lived in New York, was struggling. At that point, I was struggling with my eating disorder and my drinking. And when both of those things were happening at once, that was kind of when like the walls started closing in because it was like I was drunk from – 3 p.m. until like 3 a.m. And then I would wake up in the morning, I would binge and purge, and then I would get drunk again. And how do you think that the alcohol related to the bulimia? Like, did you think that one fueled the other? Because I've gotten um, questions about this, about like people from listeners who want to start intuitive eating. And it's like, do I intuitively consume alcohol like and I don't know the answer to this I think it's different for everyone for me um when I was at the peak of my eating disorder I didn't drink because I didn't want to consume the calories but I've heard from other people that like I've heard this term drunkorexic which it definitely not a pc term but I think it means like that one fuels the other, like it, like some girls will restrict for most of the day and then they kind of need that release and, and binge drink and then end up binging and purging. Like what was, what, did was you me. see any kind of correlation? Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely a drunk or exit. Like I remember, um, and I, which sometimes I wonder if like the eating issues kind of spurred the drinking issues. I'm not sure. Cause I know that if you drink on an empty stomach, that's like, I was a blackout drinker and I know that that is a sign of alcoholism, but it's also a thing that happens if you drink on an empty stomach. So right, specifically, right. like you are not supposed to drink on an empty stomach. And I drank 
always on an empty stomach almost every time. Like I always had an empty stomach and then I would get drunk and then I would want to eat everything because I was, my body was starving. Mm-hmm. And then I would go and I would either just binge and fall asleep and then wake up the next day hating myself or I would binge and purge while I was drunk. So it was, okay. just, it was just like a sad – Oh, it was just such a sad cycle of like – And I remember doing like diets because I was, I was always like, that's going to fix me. I just need to go on a diet. And I would go on – I went on Weight Watchers. I even paid for it. And – I was logging my calories and it was something like 90% of my calories were from alcohol. And I could I couldn't I couldn't even like because I was drinking probably two bottles of wine a day and okay. like sub or a bottle of wine and like six mixed drinks or like, you know, just I- So you were logging your alcohol as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's so interesting to me because like did you have the intention at that time? to get sober. It was right around the time that I got sober. That okay. was that was that, kind that of the so interesting straw. to me because I wouldn't think that an alcoholic would even want to count their drinks or keep yeah. track of what they're drinking. Yeah, but an alcoholic who's also bulimic and also obsessed with their weight and like right. trying to control their weight. It was just right. a really it was it was a crazy cycle because I just did feel like the t- my two disorders like the two broken parts of my brain were kind of like clashing with each other. Yeah. And and it was like, well, I tried dieting. I tried quitting any kind of bad food, but I'm still taking in so many calories. So clearly this isn't working for me. So it was almost like my obsession with calorie counting almost helped me get sober. And then, yeah. And then I got sober and I automatically lost a ton of weight really quickly and suddenly I was getting all of this positive reinforcement about my body, which I hate. I know it's a big part of society and I really probably appreciate it at the time when people say it's like a, it's a little bit of a hit oh, of at dopamine. at the time you're like feeding off of it. Yeah. When someone says like, oh, you look great. You look so skinny. How much, oh my God, you're wasting away. People would always say, you're wasting away. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And, and I just like ate it up and loved it. But it definitely kind of sent me spiraling in a different direction, which was like becoming obsessed with maintaining that weight and thinking that that was the most positive thing that I – like thinking that that was a part of my self-worth was related to being thin, that I'd never really been able to be thin because I was such a big drinker. And suddenly – it's like, oh, wow, my friends seem happy that I'm thin. My family seems happy that I'm thin. Like, oh, this must matter. This must be something that's built into my – this must make me a better person or a more worthy person. And that's like such a dangerous, dangerous mentality that I cannot yeah. I cannot say enough times, like, that we need to stop doing that. We need to stop, like, Yeah, like, stop that. commenting on people's bodies. People's period. bodies. Period. And- like, you don't need to talk about somebody who's gained weight. Which is usually behind their back. That's usually people don't say that to somebody's face. But well, you don't. Yeah, unless, way, unless you have a Jewish grandmother, which I did, and she would. <laughs> that's <laughs> true, though. Comment. That is true, though. What, well, what was it like when you were growing up? Like, did your family comment on the, on your body a lot, or like what made you so hyper focused on your body? Um, I think it wasn't. It actually wasn't my family. My my parents did everything. Well, my dad was like, my dad's a little obsessed with fitness. So he was always kind of trying to get me to work out. Um, 
But I don't think that necessarily related to my weight, although I certainly internalize it as such. But now that I work out a lot, I recognize that it has more to do with mental health. Like my dad works out every day because it makes him happy. And I feel much happier when I exercise. And I would say definitely, yeah. And I would say it's actually a huge part of my eating disorder recovery. And like what allows me to stay like sober from binging and purging is just working out. Because when I feel good about my body from exercise, then I don't then I'm, I like allow myself to binge a little bit and I'm just like, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I deserve it. Like, you know, I went for a run, which is also, yeah. I know, a little bit dangerous probably. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we'll circle back to that, but I think that working out, people don't talk enough about the actual act of like, let's say you're weightlifting or, or, you know, you're, biking or whatever it is you're doing, mm-hmm. you're focusing on one thing for an hour or ho- however long you're doing it. And you're building like a mind body connection. Mm-hmm. And it actually helps you get more in touch with your body in a way that is not necessarily like weight loss, like connected to weight loss in any way. So I think it's it sounds counterintuitive to people sometimes that working out can actually help you recover or stay true to your recovery. But in my experience, that is a hundred percent true because when I'm doing something active, I can't focus on all this crazy shit that's going on in my brain. I'm only able to focus on this one thing and achieving this one goal, which I think is really helpful in the long run. I totally agree. And I, I don't count calories and I don't do exercise based on how many calories I'm going to burn. And I don't count how many calories I eat during the day. But for me, it feels more about like dopamine that Mm -hmm. it just makes – and I've noticed that too that that as I've gotten my eating disorder under control, it's definitely correlated with like getting my mental health under control and and like dealing with anxiety and dealing with depression and taking medication. I take meds for ADHD, which is also – related to eating disorders cuz you're just mis- you're just lacking dopamine. That's like yeah. What yeah, ADHD I do too. Is. I do too. You but, also uh, have ADHD. I do. I don't take it every day because I used to take it every day when I was growing up and I felt like it changed my personality. Um so I do I will take uh Focalin if I have you know, a big project or something that I need to focus on for a long time. But I've developed like uh, a system to like be able to get my work done normally without it um, because I didn't like what it did to my personality. It it just made me very uh, lethargic and not very happy if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly like which medication, but I also take medication for depression. And I think the least depressed and the least anxious I am, the less likely I am to reach for this extreme form of coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. I I think that when it all comes down to it, that's why we do it, right? That we do it because on the inside, we're so anxious and or depressed or feel like we lack control over our lives. So th- it's just a distraction. And then once you once you stop doing the behavior, then you have to address all the issues underneath, which is that's the hard part. Like the the hard part for me wasn't exactly 
stopping the behavior because I really, really wanted to. Like for the last year that I was, um, that I was bulimic, I was suffering. And you said it earlier. You said you felt sick all the time. You really do. Horrible. And it's horrible. The side effect that I didn't know is depression. Like it made me so, so sad and lonely and like isolated from my friends because I'm like, I'm can't all the things that make me happy as a person. I'm like canceling those things. I'm canceling activities to, to be alone at night. I'm like not exercising. I'm not like going out into the world and like getting sunshine on my face. I'm just like, God, it's, it's really dark. It's a really like isolating addiction. Yeah. You kind of feel like a hamster on a wheel in a way. Yes. Because you know, and like you're living the same day over and over, like Groundhog yes. Day, like you're oh li- you're just living the same routine over and over, over and, and over, over again. And over again. Yeah, and and it's not. That's how. Like, I, I wish that more people knew about that. And I like part of doing this podcast is like trying to educate people more about that. Is it's not a vanity thing, no. and like, not and it's crazy that some people might still think that. But it's so not a vanity thing because if I like in that um, in that time, like if I loved myself, I would have been doing all the things that I loved and spending time with my friends and going to parties and stuff. But like the unknown factor was so scary that I would rather be cooped up inside with my own thoughts because I know exactly what to expect. You know yeah, what I mean? If when you so when you stay inside with yourself and like you have this little routine, even if it's horrible, even if it's like I'm binging and purging at every meal, even if it's that extreme, it you still know what to expect every day. So true. It's like 10 minutes of a dopamine rush of like an extreme euphoric kind of numbness and yeah. then the rest of your day is is kind of miserable. Like physically, yeah. you're make you're physically sick. You are emotionally sad or anxious. You're embarrassed and ashamed. Like you're constantly obsessing over how to get food, how to get rid of it, how to make sure that nobody finds you. Like it's so, it's just the worst thing ever. And I, I always just want to tell. And it's addictive. It's like yeah. it's addictive, and then you're just kind of stuck. And it, it is possible to get out. Obviously, like we were able to do it, but. I, I just, it, it was really hard. It took me like, like fifth, more than a decade and a half of like relapsing and then doing it again and then quitting and then not doing it for like up to a year and then relapsing and kind of like with, I never relapsed on alcohol, but I kind of know that if I drink like one night that I'm probably going to keep drinking for a while. Like I, you think I, I, have noticed um, some friends of mine who have been sober, you know, they'll be sober for about two years, have a relapse, and then sober for another two years, have a relapse. And I feel like after the second time, they they can go for a long time. But like, recovery is so not linear that I think like, it's unfortunate that we count days of sobriety. I mean, I shouldn't say it's unfortunate. It's great. Like it's great it's, for people to count them if that's if that it makes works them for feel some good. People, but it, it works for some people. It can but I think, be a like, little harmful. I think you're probably right. Yeah, just because I think oftentimes it's not linear. Like, and if you do relapse, that doesn't mean that you're weak. You lit you you have an addiction. Like there is 
a force outside of you or not outside of you, but like in your brain that makes you do that behavior. So I don't feel like, I don't feel like somebody who's like 10 years sober is better than somebody who's Who's, one month sober. Or someone who's been two years sober and like ha- had a few drinks in between those two years, they relapsed or whatever, but then they right. overall they've mostly been sober for ten years. Yeah, I've I've noticed it's really different. Like for me that my drinking I think just because the way I drank, it was like once I had one, I just like literally couldn't stop. Yeah. Um and then with bulimia, yeah, I mean I have managed like I've managed to have slips over the even like mm-hmm. within the past year honestly like yeah and then but I think maybe partially because I've gotten older partially because I have done so much work on myself and I just feel better or in general and I have more of a hold on my mental health that I'm more aware of like this is not a road that I want to go down yeah because you know what it leads to I know what it leads to. And I'm just like, and I haven't been in, it's been a few years since I've been in a addictive, like perpetuating cycle of like day after day after day doing, Mm -hmm. doing that behavior. So do you still deal with body dysmorphia or negative thoughts about your body? I mean, yes, but it has gotten a lot better exercise helps with that. Cause I'm just like, you know, I f- just feel kind of like better in my body just from mm-hmm. exercising. And I am less obsessed with like body fat and more obsessed with the fact that I can like lift heavy things. And I like yeah. installed my air conditioner by myself and like, <laughs> Ooh, <look at> you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I think more about like my body as like a tool and I'm like, proud of what I can do. And I, and I'm also getting older. I'm like in my mid thirties and I, in a way I'm more like, well, I want my body to like be healthy and like live a long time. And I'm, I've become more aware of like the fact that the choices I make, like impact me in a negative way, like right away. Like even if I like don't drink enough water, it'll fuck me up for like two days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Aging man. Yeah, so that's, there's that. that's so true though. That's so true. I try to drink like at least one glass of water before noon. Yeah, you got, like I have to. Whereas you know, even a few years ago, even when I was just like thirty or thirty-one, I could like not drink water. I could drink five cups of coffee, and now I can drink two a day. Or what? Like I've noticed that my body just like can't take as much, and so that makes me want to be nicer to it. Also, unfortunately, there's like a whole other world of, of, um, age shaming that like overtakes body shaming for women. So at a certain age, you're like, Oh, no one cares about my body anymore. Now I'm obsessed with like the fine lines around my eyes and like the way my hands look, if I don't moisturize them. And it's just like, Oh my God, when will it end? And I know that 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 is so true because I turned 30 this year and Uh I swear to fucking God, the day after I turned 30, I had well, one, I had the worst hangover of my like I've never <laughs> had hangovers before, and I had the worst hangover of my life. I've heard that. Happens. Second of all, I in no, your but 30s. like the day the day after, <laughs> like isn't that a little on the nose? That's so true. And then I get I get up, I look in the mirror, and I swear to fucking God, I see this coin slot 
right in between my eyebrows. And I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is not funny anymore. It's like the aging fairy just like showed up the night of like the last night of your 20s. And- Seriously. Or maybe it could be that it's just all in my head that like I maybe I was I didn't think I was anxious about turning 30, but maybe so, deep down I was a little bit. And that's how that manifested. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Are you just sort of what you're obsessed, like what you're obsessing over? Because it's like we are, we're always going to find something wrong with ourselves. Yeah. And because so much media focuses on our looks as women compared to men. Because, well, yes, because they are preying on our insecurities. They, exactly. they depend on our insecurities in order to sell products. Yep. And, uh, you know, that clicked for me a couple years ago. That really clicked for me that like, oh, yeah, all this stuff that I'm seeing is deliberately made to make me feel bad about myself. Yep. So then I will spend more Buy money. Things. Like, yeah, it, ju- it just clicked one day. And and that helped me. That did help me a lot because now I'm like anything I, I see that triggers me or affects me, you know, it makes me feel some type of way. I can think. Uh, you know, I don't want to be manipulated. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. be a dumbass who's like manipulated by outside stimuli and marketing. You know, like I want to be my own person. Same, especially when myself. I so true that realizing that has really helped me too. Because I think I'm like, oh, not only is this just a money making strategy, this is just like exploiting women in order to prop up capitalism or fuel mm-hmm. capitalism. And so they're just taking my money. I'm just burning my money and it's ending. It's going to like rich old white men. Like, yeah, that that it's like the whole reason I hate myself is just so that rich old white men can get richer. And that makes fills me so full of rage that it yes. will like prevent that it all be like, you know what? I'm not going to spend like a hundred dollars on this like anti-aging serum. I'm just going to be like, fuck it. I've, I'm, you know, this is the age I am and I am proud and there's like nothing wrong with, there's just like nothing wrong with me. No, I, I mean, first of all, you are a gorgeous and flawless (laughs) specimen, but yes, there, I, I think like we need to start embracing the fact that we have things that show our age, like, yeah, like it's not, it's not a negative thing. and. By the way, the anti-aging stuff that they sell at Sephora, it's completely not. It's horseshit. It's It's horseshit. Cream is cream. It's all the same thing. It's just- I know. It's all moisture. Like, it's good. You should put moisture on your face. Like, that is a good thing. Right. But get it from the drugstore. Go to CVS. I love CVS. And get the store brand everything. And it does. It's so true. Like, that really- It's not like I'm like, oh, well, I'm never going to moisturize. I'm never going to, like, shower again. But it's just like- it, Honestly, I would respect that too. Thank you. I'm going to continue <laughs> showering at least twice a week. <laughs> you know, whatever makes you feel good. But if you really want to make a statement, you should stop showering. You should stop showering. Stick it to the man. <laughs> Grow out your leg hair, which I also fully like respect. Um, oh, me too. And I I appreciate that when I see that on another woman. But for me, I, I don't do that. And that's also fine. Totally. That's another thing that 
that bothers me is um, I feel like people are very quick to, especially on social media, which we can we could talk about too, I'm sure. But people are very um, judgmental on social media. I don't oh, know if yeah. you know about this. Oh, I have <laughs> I don't heard. Know if you know I've about heard. this phenomenon, but like they will point out so-called hypocrisy and like use any little thing. And what what sparked that thought for me is I saw a picture of a girl um, who had grown out her leg hair and she wrote a long caption about how when she was growing up, she was always teased for having so much body hair because she was um, either part Mexican or fully Mexican. I can't remember, but she she just is hairier, just like Italian people are hairier. And, you know, certain cultures, you just have more hair. And so she started growing out her leg hair in adulthood as like a fuck you to like society for making her feel that way. Love it. The comments were like, uh, you're a hypocrite because you color your hair and you get uh, like fake eyelashes. Like they were basically pointing out all the other cosmetic stuff that she does and saying like that makes this completely nil, which to me was was just so crazy because it's like, no, we don't have to be like a full grown cave woman to prove that. <laughs> yeah. That we are not adhering to society's standards. Like we can just do what's comfortable for us. If I feel good um, putting on false eyelashes, but I don't want to shave my leg hair, why does that make me a hypocrite? Yes, that is so true. And it's true. It's like all humans, there's nothing wrong with hypocrisy. Like we're all hypocrites. Like we all say one thing and break it in certain ways. Like it's just, right. just a fact. Like nobody fully practices what they preach. And it's just, that's just like a reality of humanity. But I think you're so right. We need to just like embrace whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us feel like sexy and confident and not and not obsess over what other people do. Like it just shouldn't matter. Yeah. What yeah. other people what do you, choices. Do they you make. find that as you get older you obsess less about how others will perceive you? Oh, Emily, I hope so. <laughs> it is such a tough habit to break. But I certainly care less now than I did five years ago um, or two years ago. I I also – I spend less time on social media and honestly, it it helps. That's good. Yeah. Honestly – I got kicked off of Instagram. This happened Congrats. like, oh my God, thank you. You're welcome. I literally don't know why. Do you know? Okay. They gave me an error message that said like, it looks like, you know what happened? Okay. This, I, and this is like completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but I grew my following like a lot. I don't have a big following, but I had, I was off Instagram for like a year to uh-huh. um, actually when I was in my recovery to focus on that. And I found a lot of the images really triggering and just, it, I couldn't do it. So I was off of it for a year, get back on. And, um, and I was like, wh- when I finally decided that it was healthy for me to do it, um, I was really focused on growing my following. So I was using, you know, like hashtags and all that bullshit. I fucking hate talking about this stuff, by the way, but I grew my following a lot. And then one day I get a, a message that said, it looks like you like used a service to grow your following or like paid somebody. And I did not pay anybody, but I got kicked off for a week. I got kicked what? off for a whole week. Yes. And 
it was painful. It was actually painful. And after a week, I kind of realized, like throughout that week, I realized, oh, okay, like you need to take a step back because clearly if you getting banned for one single week is driving you this crazy, like you, you're probably on it a little too much. So since then I've cut back. It definitely was the moral is, of that story. That makes perfect sense. Like it definitely, I mean, that's crazy that they kicked you off, but maybe it was like you have oh a little- Oh my God, such maybe you have a little, Or maybe you have a little guardian angel at in, over at Instagram that was like, Emily Lubin, we're going to help you. We're going to do you this solid. Maybe, maybe they were doing it for me. Do you know, I wrote them an email. I it's highly unlikely of- based on everything we know about Mark Zuckerberg's empire, but I like want to believe that there's some good little elves that are just like yeah, out yeah. there trying to care for our mental health. <laughs> I always like to believe that somebody gives a shit about me, but probably very few people do. Oh, well, thank you. A lot of people Um, do. But I actually wrote them an email and I knew that nothing would happen from this and probably nobody was even reading this. But I was like, just for my own peace of mind, I was like, I'm going to write them an email. Yes. So I write them an angry email. Dear Mr. Instagram. Yes, dear Mr. Instagram, I got this horrifying error message that said that I did something against the code of ethics. Which I would never do. I respect all of your rules. Like, I'm a thirst monster, but I am not a scam artist. We we all know that's allowed. If that wasn't allowed, then no one would be on it. And everyone would be kicked off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fully. But anyway, we do need to wrap up soon, but is there anything that – you feel like you would like to share that you haven't shared or anything that you would like listeners to take away from this? Like if they are struggling with the things that you've struggled with? Yes. I would say get rid of your scale. Never weigh yourself again. The best thing I ever did was get rid of my scale and, um, and like surround yourselves with people who know that like weight is not, has nothing to do with your worth. Like unfollowing, you can do that on Instagram and you should. And I do that. I unfollow anybody who's like triggering, but you can unfollow people in real life too. Like if your friend is always like my thighs, like you can unfollow that friend. Like you don't have to hang out with them. You don't have to be around people who ascribe worth to like the way that your body looks or what size clothes you wear. It's like the least important thing about a person. Yeah. I love that. I love, I'm going to unfollow everybody. <laughs> I truly like noticed that. I, I mean, I've, I've been really like loud about how I don't, I don't allow that kind of, it's like self-loathing being publicly self-loathing is another form of like body shaming that pe- it might seem like it's just about you, but it actually affects people around you. So I, like, I just try to never shit talk my, my body in front of my friends. And I try to not hang out with people who should talk their own bodies. And it really has made a huge positive difference in my life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think we underestimate how much the people that we hang out with really do affect us. Yeah. Like messaging about like these forms of messaging, like they really, they do matter. Um, And also I would just say that like human contact and, and human interaction is a huge like solution to whatever coping mechanism you're addicted to. It's like go to therapy and talk to your friends and and don't isolate yourself because that's where they always say that in AA too, that like addiction thrives in isolation. And oh, if, okay. if you can force yourself to like get out of your own, I know it's so hard when you're like in a dark place. It, it's just, it's tough. I mean, it's just like, that that part is really tough, right? Because like if you're in a really dark place, 
Um, you don't want to be around people. people. I know. Yeah, I, you just don't want to be a bummer like that. For me, I just I don't want to drag other people down with me. But I think that is important, and also to realize that you have people in your life that want to, you to thrive and want to be around you and want to support you. So totally. you shouldn't feel like oh, I don't want to drag somebody else down with me because you would do the same for them. For them, yeah. Having friends who also are in recovery from eating disorders has been really helpful too because it's nice to be able to call. I mean, I've been to a – I've definitely like done some recovery meetings and I never really got as into it as I did with AA, but like it's really nice to just be able to call someone and be like, I feel triggered. Like I've been doing that a lot during during this – during the pandemic, like the pandemic is really triggering. And there've been a lot of times where I'm like, I just want to like control something. I just want to like numb out with food and I'll just say that to someone or I'll just talk to somebody else who uh, is like, Oh yeah, same. And then, yeah. And, and you that, find that that helps just to have like a camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. A lot. That's, that's a great suggestion. Well, Thank you so much. Uh, This was a V-serious conversation, but like I said, May is hilarious. Definitely worth a follow. (laughs) I don't only talk about bulimia. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I don't know if you want these people to follow you. Just kidding. (laughs) Where can they find you and follow you? Um, You can find me on Twitter at ShutUpMay. And I know I said I'm not on Instagram a lot, but I'm there. I'm there plenty, just less than before, um, at, at May Wilkerson. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Emily. This was so fun. And I love seeing your face, too. And Ugh. we'll talk soon. Oh, hello. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with May Wilkerson. I think she brought up a lot of interesting points. I loved talking to her about the way that her alcoholism related to her eating disorder because I have gotten DMs about that very topic, which I've never been able to really speak to because alcohol did not really fuel my eating disorder. Um, Like I said in the conversation, I very much abstained from alcohol when I was in the peak of my eating disorder. And I it, it was somewhat of a fear food for me, even though alcohol is not really a food. It was a fear beverage. But May helped me to understand how the two really can go hand in hand. And I hope that you were able to to glean something from that. I would love feedback and I would love more insight on these topics that we covered in today's show. Feel free to slide into my DMs. I am Lubination, that's L-U-B-I-N-A-T-I-O-N on Instagram, or you can send me an email at ripdiets at gmail.com. Be a part of the conversation, guys. Get at me. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if there are other topics or guests that you would like me to have on the podcast. I would love to know. This podcast is just as much for you guys as it is for me, if not more, to be frank. Also, if you have not joined the Facebook group, you are missing out. We're having so much fun on the Facebook group. It feels like I am at a virtual sleepover with all my girlfriends and we are just chatting about how fucked up diet culture is and hyping each other up and oh it is just amazing you need to be a part of it go to Facebook type in the search bar RIP dieters and you can request to be added I usually will let you in right away and definitely within 24 hours and then you can be a part of our massive virtual slumber party and I will be so thrilled to have you 
All I ask is that you keep it a safe space and don't say anything disparaging about others' bodies or bring diet culture into the conversation unless it is to say a big fuck you to diet culture, which I welcome. And that's it, guys. If you have not done so, write an iTunes review. And just so you know, when you write an iTunes review, it is completely anonymous. You can pick your name and you can write whatever the fuck you want. I'm going to give you some ideas of things that you can write in your iTunes review. You can write, thank God for this podcast. This is the podcast we need in this world. Fuck diet culture. Emily is gorgeous and flawless and speaks so eloquently about diet culture. Um, Yeah, just write something fucking nice. You can use any of those. You don't need to credit me. And rank it five stars. It really does help people find the podcast. And I am itching for more reviews because I love reading them. And it really motivates me to keep going because I feel like I'm actually helping people. And that's what this is all about. So with that in mind... Have a fabulous week, and I'll talk to you all soon. Peace out. <music>